how did did you first get into the the movie riffing? Um, well, I mean, I've been a fan of mystery science theater uh, going on, I don't know, 12 years now of actively collecting those box sets that they've been releasing, you know, um, started with like the Shout Factory ones. Like I just happened to find one at Best Buy and I bought it. I fell in love with the show because of uh, the first episode I saw was Werewolf and from there I was hooked. But um, before that, I had seen episodes on television on the sci-fi channel way back in the late 90s um you know but i caught like two episodes and i didn't really know what the show was called because uh the only way that you knew about the only way you could find out what movie played or what show played was if you used the tv guide so um you know for years i didn't know what that show was uh but so then i started you know i rediscovered it and i started actively collecting the box sets um, and I kind of always wanted to do something similar because I love watching crappy movies with my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started this show called Movies to Watch on a Rainy Afternoon um, in 2011. And so I started doing sort of uh, what was later not coined by me, but a friend of mine. Um, I would call them Riff Views, where it's movie reviews of these cheesy bad films um, but I condensed them down into about 15, 20 minutes of sort of like the best of the worst clips. And I just did that for a while. Um, there's 122 episodes on YouTube right now, and they all range from about 15 to 20 minutes long. Uh, but after about, I don't know, five or six years of the riff views of these movies that were like 15, 20 set or 15, 20 minutes long, I started to realize that, um, we were writing way more material than we needed for a 15, 20 minute YouTube video. So in April, 2016, uh, Lloyd Kaufman, the president of Troma Entertainment was in town at a horror convention. So I sort of wrote together a pitch for him and confronted him at the convention and asked him, uh, you know, I'd like to um, create like a feature length movie ripping show like uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Um, can I use Troma Films and call it Troma Masterpiece Theater? And you know, we'll, you know, riff on Toxic Avenger or something. And he told me that Toxic Avenger was not available. I couldn't use that. But uh, he did end up giving me his first film he ever made called The Battle of Love's Return. And we just kind of ran with it. And um, we've been doing sort of this feature length ripping stuff ever since. Wow. Uh, I've met Lloyd uh, at a local theater here in town and I gave him a copy, one of my early movies, but then I kind of ran off real quick, you know. Oh, yeah. You know, well, congratulations on making your own damn movie. So cool to hear from a person, you know. What was the movie? Uh, It's one of my early ones. It was called Comic Book Diaries. Uh, I've made five features so far and the first two were kind of like you just get together with your friends on weekends. Oh, of course. Yeah. And so the quality of those is, yeah, you know, but you got to start somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, lately, we've, uh, we were making a movie back in March, of all things. And about midway through the production, we had to shut down because of everything going of on. But yeah. we've got about 85% of the new one in the can. So if we can okay, very close. a few minutes, a few months and get the last 12 minutes done, then we're yeah. done with the movie. So. It's always something, though, that, that could happen just uh, anyways, if there wasn't craziness in the world, you know. Sure. I mean, uh, problems. it took me two and a half years, basically, to finish uh, episode two of Tremasterpiece Theater, because uh, Lloyd gave us Poultrygeist, and um, my friend 
who had built the, uh, the Corny and Reilly puppets for a Masterpiece Theater. Um, he had passed away and he was the voice of Corny too. Um, so I didn't know if I could get somebody to replace him and be the new Corny if I would have to get a new character or something. Um, and then before I could even gather my thoughts about that situation, I got really sick and I had my own health scare for a couple of months. So I, I never really thought that Masterpiece Theater would ever make it past one episode. Um, but we, you know, ended up banding together and I got someone else to do the voice of Corny and uh, ran the Kickstarter and we made, you know, a lot of money for it. And I was able to, you know, shoot the thing and get it out there in the world. Right. And what I really like about the Troll Masterpiece Theater episodes is uh, you really seem to capture the, the spirit of what MST kind of brought to it. Yeah. Even more so in this weird way where they would show something like Side Hackers that is just this like ugly movie on its own and they watch it and they turn it into like this thing of beauty somehow <laughs> because yeah. it's so kind of light and innocent like you and the uh and corny and really you know you're just hanging out doing yeah and you're watching these movies that are like oh my god poultry guys there's some really insane yeah, poultry guys is pretty graphic you know it's a very disgusting film uh, but that was what I wanted to try to do with Masterpiece Theater was what Mystery Science Theater and Rift Tracks can't, which is show movies that are extreme, you know, and show movies that are uncut. Um, with Side Hackers, I know that there's, um, you know, like a behind the scenes story where they license the movie before actually watching it in its entirety. And there's like a graphic sex scene or a rape scene or something that, you know, obviously you can't rip on something like that. That's horrible. Um, so they had to cut the film and uh, just riff on the remainder. But um, with something like Poultry Geist, uh, it's gross and disgusting, but nothing like something like that where it's like, oh, you can't, I mean, you can't riff on that. You don't, I don't want to riff on something like that. Um, this is more like exploding diarrhea and people getting their eyeballs poked out. It's a comedy. Um, so... I wanted to riff on like exploitation movies with this kind of gross out content and, you know, try to riff on something that was already like crazy because a lot of times too, with mystery science theater movies or riff tracks movies, I mean, those movies are so dull mm -hmm. that um, it almost entirely relies on the riffing. And sometimes they can't even do it. You know, they can't make that film entertaining. I've, you know, there's plenty of mystery science theater episodes. I've only been able to watch once just because it's like, I know you guys gave it hell, but that one, that movie was not for me. I can't even watch it with the ripping. Um, so I knew with trauma that their movies are all, you know, they come prepackaged with kind of this crazy gross out content. So I already kind of figured like, all right, that's a step in the right direction. You know, people are never going to get bored while watching these films. I might think this movie sucks or mm -hmm. stupid as hell, but they'll never get bored. Right. And, you know, that's what I want to do, make an R-rated mystery science theater or riff tracks because uh, we swear in it too. And, um, you know, we don't go crazy with it. Like, it's not like South Park or anything like that. But, I mean, the characters do drop F-bombs and stuff, mm -hmm. and that's not something that, like, you know, Tom Servo or Crow could do. So we just kind of, you know, we want, it's the same style, it's the same format. However, we just, you know, we're a lot edgier. Yeah. And it seems to have paid off for you because you've got uh, the two episodes on the Troma mm -hmm. streaming service. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Lloyd liked the first one enough to the point where he greenlit Poltergeist almost instantaneously. Um, so, you know, we ran with it. Because when I first, like I said, when I first pitched him the idea, I asked him if I could do the Toxic Avenger Part 3. Because that's kind of like 
the black sheep of the franchise. There's four of those movies, but the third one's kind of considered the worst just because it's mainly clips and stuff that was deleted from part two. It's like leftover footage that they then shaped into a new movie and it doesn't work. Um, you can tell that it's just like, you know, um, just excess footage and didn't really have a story or anything. It's very just shapeless. Wood had patched it together from random footage. Like we got yeah, like, somewhere. It just doesn't work. And so I kind of thought like, well, it is Toxic Avenger 3. So it does have name brand recognition to it. Um, and it is a bad movie. So, you know, maybe I could use that one as my pilot. But he said no Toxic movies, which was fine. So, uh, yeah, he gave us Battle of Love's Return, which is his first movie. And that kind of ended up, I think, being... It made more sense because if it was like, well, we're doing our pilot episode, why not use his first movie? Right. You know, so I think that ended up being sort of like it worked out fine. However, that movie is a, like a, what I'm saying, like atrociously boring. <laughs> and I did not blame people for maybe like shutting it off or not particularly liking it that much because it wasn't exactly what I was pitching of this R-rated mystery science theater because the movie itself is very tame and boring. Um, but so I, I really got to fulfill that dream with episode two by getting poultry geist. Like mm -hmm. that wasn't even one I would have imagined he would have let us do. That's so new. Well, it's newer and it's way better. You know, it's actually, you know, it's a good, funny trauma film. So I thought like, you know, well, if Tax Avenger 3 is off the table, then Poultry Guys definitely is. Right. But, you know, he offered it up, so we did it. Wow. That, that's almost like if uh, he used to say, here's a, you know, Terra Firma or one of these. You'd be like, yeah, yeah. really giving me Tromeo and Juliet to rip on? I would have expected something like Fat Guy Goes Nutsoid or... Yeah, exactly. Something like in the back catalog, like Surf Nazis Must Die or something. Yeah. But um, no, I mean, I think what it was, was that he was offering up movies that he himself had directed. So it didn't get into like the weird sort of legality loops of like, you know, because, um, you know, Troma works as a not only just a film company, but they're a film distributor, too. So mm -hmm. they'll pay for movies and, you know, put them in their catalog and license them for about 15, 20 years and, um, you know, put them on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray and all that stuff and like renew those contracts. But you know, they don't outright own as many as, like, what it appears to be. Yeah, it, obviously, they own the ones that Lloyd Kaufman directed himself, which is about 15 or 16 of them. So those he could give to me. Um, so it, it, it all makes sense. Yeah. You, you would have had a blast with Troma's War. Or did you do that one as a rainy day? Yeah. Um, before Tremasterpiece, I kind of did, like, a test run with – uh, some trauma stuff for movies to watch in a rainy afternoon. He had sent me sort of a, a short list of films that I could do for rainy afternoon. Trauma's War was on that list. Uh, so was Terror Farmer. I just never got around to doing it. Um, that is like my favorite trauma film too. So I was kind of hoping that maybe like I won't do it for rainy afternoon, but someday I could do it for Tremasterpiece Theater. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, what else was on that list? I think uh, BC Butcher was one, which is a movie that was made by Kansas Bowling. And so this was like three years ago. Um, I had reached out to her and asked her for permission. Cause I was like, listen, I do this movie riffing show. It's kind of like mystery science theater, but like a 15 minute version. Um, and I'm doing stuff with trauma right now. Boyd offered your film, you know, obviously trauma owns it, but um, I'd like to ask you permission personally, just because, just because Lloyd owns it, it's still your property. It's still your film. Is that cool? 
And not only was she okay with it, but she sent me an autographed DVD in the mail. So that was really cool. Because that's how you met her originally is through Lloyd? Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Because for the yeah. audience that doesn't know, uh, Kansas Bowling is uh, the star of your upcoming Psycho Ape movie. A movie yeah. shot on many DV on purpose. I mm -hmm. love that, Jack. And oh, yeah. She is actually in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as the character Blue. So I was mm -hmm. going to ask you, how did you get mixed up with her? Do you meet at a convention yeah. or something? But it was through... It was, the, it was that. It was that. So we've known each other for about three years now through just like Instagram messaging and stuff like that. Um, she was, she ended up liking the riff of, you know, the movies to watch on a rainy afternoon riff of her film, BC Butcher. And I'd sent her uh, like a box of Tremasterpiece Theater business cards that she had been passing out for a while. She told me that whenever somebody ordered something from her website, she would include a Tremasterpiece card in the order. Um, and I thought that was really cool because I didn't even know she was doing that. But uh, yeah, last year I reached out to her because we were starting production on our film Psycho Ape, which is um, it's a you know a slasher film comedy shot on mini DV tape in the year 2020 um, about a killer gorilla that escapes from the Detroit Zoo, and it's literally just my roommate in a gorilla costume, but it's supposed to be a real gorilla. But when he turns around, you can see the strings like dangling on his back and everything like that is totally intentional. Um, but so when we were casting, we had an opening scene with um, like a teen girl slumber party, but we were going to cast um, girls in their like 20s and stuff like that. So it clearly like they were, you know, not teen girls, but they were going to play teen girls, um, that like slasher trope. But um, so we reached out to her and asked her like if her and her you know, friends would be interested in participating in the film. And she said that if she was going to participate in the film, she wouldn't want to be just in one scene. She would want to play in the whole movie because she's a fan of um, my cinematographer's movie, Hectic Knife, oh. uh, which is a film that he made a couple of years ago and is currently being distributed through Troma. Um, so she was a fan of Hectic Knife. And when she heard about this project after I, when I pitched it to her, uh, she said that she would yeah, sign up and agree to do it as long as she got a bigger role. Mm -hmm. So uh, that posed a challenge for us because then we were like, well, we only have really like an opening scene sort of written. Um, and then we kind of just wrote the whole movie with her in mind because it was like, well, she wants to do it. So let's you know, write some funny stuff for her. If she's going to be our lead, then, you know, let's, Let's make her our lead. Let's let's give her stuff to do. Wow, that's that's great. That's crazy yeah. how all this works out like that. I know that's yeah, pretty cool. Got uh, Bill Whedon in the movie. Now, some some people in the audience know him, but they don't know him by name because he's been mm. in so many movies. I mean, I was looking up some of his uh, credits before I got on here with you, and not only is he in Toxic Avenger Four and Sergeant Kabuki Man, yeah, uh, he's he's made three movies with the Coen brothers. Yeah. He's, wow. he's chatted with me about them. Um, <laughs> it's pretty cool. I mean, he's, it's not an IMDB anymore, but he said that uh, he was an extra on Batman forever. Hmm. And uh, he said that when he was on set shooting with like Joel Schumacher and Jerry, Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones, that he could see the friction between those three people and that they were just not getting along. Um, 
And uh, he, when he finally saw the finished product, he was not a fan of the movie. So he went on IMDb and actually removed his credit himself because uh, he doesn't want that on his resume. Wow. And he said when he was on set and the camera was sort of sweet by, he was sort of ducked behind somebody because he was there for like, you know, the money. Because when you're an extra, you do get paid. Um, not a substantial amount, but it's something. And so uh, he just got, it was just for the money and for just being on set and stuff. But he didn't want to, he actively chose not to be on camera and then he removed the credit from IMDb. So um, there is no like real actual evidence that you can <laughs> sort of find, but it's like, why would he lie? I don't know. I, I believe him. <laughs> yeah. That one is notorious production problems with that Batman film. That's funny. Yeah, exactly. Like, no. <laughs> right. I mean, so it's like, you hear the stories anyway, and it's like, well, he was actually there. I believe him. Right. Uh, he's going to play the uh, Dr. Loomis type character in the uh, Psychoid film, or I should say has played already since you shot. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, yeah, originally, like, our basically the skeleton of our script was only really going to include, like, a Dr. Loomis character tracking down the Psychoid with, like, a big stupid, like, dog catcher net and stuff like that. But um, we ended up expanding the character because it was, I mean, the whole thing was just, it started out as sort of a parody of Halloween where this ape kills a bunch of teen girls at a slumber party and then uh, becomes incarcerated for all these years and ends up escaping. And his sort of zookeeper psychologist is, his name is Dr. Zoomis instead of Dr. Loomis. But um, I ended up meeting Bill Whedon a couple of months before production of Psycho Ape because I had never met him before. We weren't writing with him in mind. It was just that I went to a screening of Sergeant Kabuki Man and uh, for Masterpiece Theater episode one in New York. Someone had set that up um, and they invited me. You know, it, was, it wasn't my screening. It was just like, hey, we're showing a double feature of Kabuki Man and for Masterpiece um do you want to come and i was like well yeah sure so i ended up flying out to new york and stayed at a hotel overnight and uh hung out with bill whedon all night and i pitched him the movie and he was on board um i didn't think it would be so easy but he was totally on board because he sat through masterpiece theater and liked it so much um i mean he hated the movie battle loves return and that was very funny to me to watch him sort of leave the theater every 20 minutes because he just couldn't handle it even with the riffing but out in the lobby like i kind of asked him like so what'd you think you know like i saw you that you kept leaving and he was like well your jokes were hysterical but that movie is awful um and so when i told him like well i'm working on another project it's not necessarily a riffing project but it's this killer eight movie and so you know once i described the character to him he was on board wow so that was just happenstance. I mean, that was just a total coincidence where um, we were writing with just, we were just writing the character, Dr. Zumas. Uh, and it turned into, oh, we're writing the character for Bill Whedon. You know, like basically I got home from that trip and it was like, all right, we got Bill. So um, let's write with him in mind. Gives you a whole new angle on it. It's, it just goes to show for anybody out there who's aspiring to do anything in the business, you just... You just keep doing your thing and putting yourself out there. And then eventually the snowball effect starts to kick in. And then oh, sure. like you were just describing happened and you weren't even, it's always when you least expect it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, I was just going to New York because my thing was being screened, you know, in New York and I didn't have to pay for like the theater rental or anything. So I thought, sweet. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, they're showing my movie for me. Like, awesome. 
And then, oh, Bill Whedon's going to be there because they're showing Kabuki Man as well. Totally, I'm in. And, like, I was all nervous, you know, meeting him and stuff and had him sign my Kabuki Man DVD. But um, then after the screening was when I sort of confronted him and, you know, laid out this upcoming project. And I was like, well, it's, I think I went to New York in, like, April or May of last year, and then we were shooting by June. Wow. Um, so I was back to New York, you know, a month or two later. We were, you know, rolling film tape with Bill Whedon in Kansas. Mm. That's crazy how just so fast. So yeah, it happened really, really fast. I mean, uh, I, I can't believe how quickly that went. Cause then we shot for like nine days in a row. It was like four or five in New York and then about four or five, um, here back in Michigan. Cause me and Greg, my cinematographer and Steven, my roommate who plays the ape, we drove from Michigan to New York um, to meet up with Bill in Kansas because they were both living there, shot with them for, you know, a couple of days in a row. And um, then we took them back to Michigan with us. So it was all of us cramped in one van <laughs> and uh, filmed here and finished the shoot here and uh, got them on flights and sent them back home. Right. So then, you know, like they're, they're not in every single scene of the movie. There's plenty of other stuff that we filmed without them. Cause that'll be a funny surprise for them when they finally see the movie and see all the <laughs> stuff that we shot without them. Cause we didn't really shoot with like a script or anything. It was basically just four pages stapled together of like a bullet pointed outline. And that's kind of like what we showed to them. Um, but of course, once we wrapped with them, we shot way more footage to make the movie, you know, 70 minutes. So, I mean, they're in the movie and they're in a substantial chunk of the movie, but there's plenty of other scenes that they're not in and that they don't know about. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. We can look forward um, to seeing that one uh, next year, perhaps? Uh, later this month, or no, not, I think, because we just wrapped it on Thursday. Oh. So, uh, because of coronavirus, um, we hadn't been able to shoot it for a long time because of, you know, everybody was in quarantine. We want to be safe. So we hadn't seen each other or gotten together since maybe like February or March. And we were so close to finishing the movie, even, you know, a couple months ago that uh, we knew that we just need like two days. That's all we need, like two full shooting days of all of the sort of like insert shots and the uh, like blood effects that we still need to shoot. And then we're just done. So we kind of put it off and put it off and put it off. And we just decided in the last two weeks, all right, the next two Thursdays in a row, we're going to shoot. We're going to knock it out. We'll be done with it. So that finally it's done. What was kind of like, I guess, sort of lucky is that during quarantine, uh, Greg actually cut the movie. Oh, yeah. So, I have a similar story. That's what I did. Yeah. I just around and cut for two months. <laughs> right. So he, he, he took this entire uh, quarantine to edit the entire movie to about 63 minutes, something like that, 65 minutes. And all he has to do is patch in the scenes that we just shot in the last two weeks and the movie's done. It's just going to need some more, you know, sound mixing and finish up the score and everything and just, you know, give that final polish. But I mean, we're basically looking at a late September, October release. Wow. That's cool. So it was really close. We were, we were very, very close to being done. Wow. So uh, we got a few more minutes before the Zoom cuts off here, but it should be enough time to talk about the new project that you're running a okay. Kickstarter for right now. Uh, so tell us about what Roastmaster Peace Theater is going to be. Okay. Um, Roastmaster Peace Theater is my rebranding of Trowmaster Peace Theater. 
because of the coronavirus and everybody's in quarantine, you know, Troma is not operating at uh, full speed right now. License me movies right now. But, you know, I've been done with Poultry Geist since January. That episode's been, you know, like out there in the world since January. And I have been working on a, a feature length riffing project since. So, you know, when I reached out to him to ask for a third movie to riff, he wouldn't give me one. So I attempted to run a Kickstarter to uh, license movies from Full Moon, but uh, Full Moon was a lot more expensive than I thought, and that Kickstarter was not a success. Um, which I understood, you know, I was asking for a lot of money, and it was, you know, whatever. I tried it, and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. So um, it went from like a retitling from Troll Masterpiece to Roast Masterpiece to try to do Full Moon stuff, and when that didn't work out, I'm scaling everything even further down and it's going to become, it's still going to be like the same style of movie riffing with me and Corny and really working at this movie theater, but it's going to be a very meta movie riffing project where me and Corny and really are working at this movie theater during the pandemic. And we realize that we're not making any money because uh, no one's coming to the movies. So what do we have to do to, you know, draw people here? So we decide to just take whatever money is in the cash register, like a hundred bucks and some change. And we're going to shoot our own movie, like as the characters. And it's just going to be this really low budget, cheesy rubber monster movie called the cult of Frankenstein. And it's going to have a lot of like wicker man tones. And it's going to be like a dirty a down and dirty, like drive-in 60s, 70s style, like grindhouse movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's just going to be this like Frankenstein movie with like a rubber Frankenstein mask that like barely resembles Boris Karloff because I'm going to, you know, I, I got it from, you know, party city and it just looks like crap. But um, that's the point is the movie itself has to sort of look like it was shot by a guy and two puppets. So it's not going to be this high quality production um, because then you're going to see like Corny and Reilly and I, uh, in like writer's room situations, pitching ideas to each other. You're going to see us like actually shooting the movie, um, sort of like how an Ed Wood and Johnny, or Johnny, how uh, in Tim Burton's Ed Wood, you see Johnny Depp like shooting the scenes for Bride of the Monster, Plan 9 from Outer Space, Glenn or Glenda. Um, like take those scenes and you're going to see, you know, Corey and Reilly and I doing that, filming our Frankenstein movie. And the whole thing is going to culminate in the end where we're going to be watching the final cut of our movie and riffing on our own feature the way that like, you know, you know, you know, low budget filmmakers watch their own film and, and like, you know, project it in the backyard or something and mm-hmm. invite people over and like have beers and, you know, eat popcorn and just like shout at the screen and everything. So it's not going to be like a typical movie riff type scenario where we're riffing on something that we've never seen before. We're going to be sort of nitpicking our own feature. Like why that get in there or how that get in there. You know, I I thought Mm -hmm. I cut that scene or, um, you know, maybe we should have reshot that or, you know, Oh, I guess, you know, there's been, you know, you know, uh, I don't know, just, just stuff like that. The way that you just sort of like, as a, as a filmmaker, you know, when Mm -hmm. you're showing the rough cut of something to somebody and you're like, you know, actively nitpicking, your own production that's what we're going to do but it's still going to be in like the silhouettes the bottom of the screen wow so it's like uh because you were forced to do it a different way it made you more innovative and it's like creating this new meta sort of in a way going back to your commentary riff 
but as on your own thing, it's almost like sitting mm -hmm. in the edit bay with you and, and the puppets. That's that's totally. That's exactly what it is. Like that's how I'm describing it. Is you're sitting and like most people don't really, unless you're an editor or a filmmaker, you don't really know what that means. Mm -hmm. But it's sitting in the editing bay and watching people make a movie. It's a whole different type of commentary than just like riff tracks riffing. Right. Riff tracks riffing is pre-written jokes that you know are full of references to other movies or pop culture but this is literally you peering over the shoulder and watching filmmakers critique their own work and when you're pulling your hair out and stuff like that trying to make scenes work that can be funny too um so we're going to try to make this frankenstein thing sort of as earnest as possible for um you know not that much money like my kickstarter is only a thousand bucks and really i just wanted that money to buy a camera um, I wanted to get uh, like a, you know, an HD, like DSLR camera or something. So I kind of spitballed like, you know, the, the average one is like a thousand bucks, maybe a little bit less. The Kickstarter takes a fee. It's an 8% fee. So by asking for a thousand, you know, they'll take away a hundred bucks or something like that. And then I'm left with about 900. There's still plenty to, you know, buy a, a, like a nice DSLR camera or something. Uh, and then any leftover money, um, like the more that I raise is just, that's just more like money that I can go to, like uh, Party City or um, you know Spirit Halloween in October and just like raid their shelves. I, I plan to buy just a, you know a slew of rubber monster masks and fake limbs and gallons and gallons of fake blood, um, and just you know go crazy with that leftover money to just make the movie you know just full of cheapness, you know, cheap effects and stuff like that. Nice. So it's not like spending the money on something like overtly expensive. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna buy a lot of small stupid things you know what i mean yeah more production value that way mm -hmm. yeah just everything's just gonna be rubber and dumb like my I, I i want my receipt from spirit halloween to you know just unfurl and be just all these dumb plastic rubber like props and knives and you know fake blood and frankenstein masks and uh like that's the goal here awesome well, uh, you can support Addison's new project on, on his Kickstarter. I got the link in the description below. Uh, so thanks for joining us today on what not really is the GMR podcast because Gene and Ray aren't here. It's just me. Uh, so this is kind of like a special offshoot just because I was really interested in what Addison's doing with this whole Cult of Frankenstein and Roast Masterpiece Theater. So it was I great agree. to talk to you today, man. And I'll have this posted Absolutely. probably in a few days. So. Sure, sure. Kickstarter time there. Yeah, the, the Kickstarter is still going for another 19 days, you know, so nice. plenty of time. And, uh, you know, even for like a buck, you know, someone can get their name in the credits and that ends up on IMDb, like as a special thanks. So if you, if, you know, I know there's some people who like to just, just for fun, sort of collect IMDb credits. And if that's something you're interested in, you know, it's only going to cost a dollar to do, you know. <laughs> cool. Well, right on. Nice talking to you. Nice to meet you. And uh, we'll talk again before too long. Thanks for having me. Definitely. Definitely. Oh, thanks, for, thanks for having me on, man.